You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Before we jump in, one more reminder that we have the Evolution of Adam video series coming out October 28th. Make sure you check it out. Yeah. And, you know, this is a six-week series. Actually, I keep saying six-week series. It's not. It's a six... Whatever time you want. Don't a, let anybody tell you what to do. There are six, like, videos or something, right? There were videos. Not or something. There, or some, there are videos. It's there, six, six videos. videos, me talking. And, uh, yeah, you can finish that in five minutes. Well, you can't finish in five minutes, but you can I mean, if you it. go real fast, you could do, like, four or five times. Just 50 speed. You yeah, can do that. So exactly. Anyway, but anyway, anyway d- do what you want. The main exactly. thing is just do it. That's yeah. the thing. So, And this, this uh, video series is really based on the second edition, the 10th anniversary edition of The Evolution of Adam, which is put out by Baker Books and is available for you uh, really, 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 really soon. Yeah. So... Pay what you can for the first week, so make sure you go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash evolution video. Okay, well, our episode today is Monsters in the Bible, and our guest is Heather McCumber. And Heather is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Providence University College, and she has a book called Recovering the Monstrous in Revelation, so check that out. But in As in the book of. The book of Revelation. Right, yeah. Right, right. yeah. But that's not the title. No. No. It's just in Revelation. In Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> We just had to, you know, let's make sure we're real clear about this. just made that things. more confusing than it had to be. So, this is interesting. I, I, I have to say, I have to preface this whole episode with, I've been nerding out about this for a year when we first learned about Heather, and I thought, what a wonderful episode to have right before Halloween. I think yes. it would be great to talk about monsters in the Bible right before Halloween, you know, as we're watching Hocus Pocus and all these other movies as one does for Halloween. You let your kids watch this? Of course. Okay. Of course. Wow. I wasn't allowed as, as a kid. <laughs> I could only go as a Bible character. So, man, we just really unleashed it now. I know. Who'd you go as? It doesn't matter. They're all the same. One of the names. You just give them a name. You wear the exact same thing, and it could be Moses, it could be Jesus, it could be Abraham. Doesn't matter. That's the nice thing. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Anyway, back to monsters. It's really surprising, like, what a monster is and where they're found in the Bible. That, that's sort of the key here. Don't think of Shrek or something. You know, it's, it's, it's a little more – or maybe you think of Shrek, but not just Shrek. Right. It's, it's more than – Shrek's that. actually a really – you just gave a very complicated answer because Shrek kind of fits in some of these definitions yes, we're about to exactly. learn about. exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so have right. fun, folks, and happy Halloween. Monsters matter. Monsters aren't just the evil creatures. The monstrous is something – that can cause awe as much as it can terror. When we start looking at the monster, in an interesting way, it makes us start thinking about what holiness means. And it also helps us to not sanitize the God of both the Old and New Testament, but to realize we cannot put God in a box and and try to make God comfortable. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. 
So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome to this episode of the podcast, Heather. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Uh, so before we get started, I think it's really important to ask what happened, what went wrong in your childhood um, that led you to want to study monsters in the Bible? Yeah. That's a good question. So, I did most of my doctoral research on angels, and I was working a lot on angels in the book of Daniel and the book of like One Enoch and a little bit of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I was very focused on, you know, kind of the traditional idea of the angel in heaven as a kind of a, you know, the good the good character comes to help and is sent by God to humanity. Mm -hmm. And I was very interested in like the intersection with the like earth and heaven. And it was good, but it was really lacking, I think some, I don't know, critical groundwork. And I really wanted to present at a conference and I wanted to present on the book of Daniel and the angels. And I remember looking at, they always have these descriptions of, you know, what they're looking for. And I remember them saying something, we're looking for some critical methodologies, you know, post-colonial, feminist, and then monster theory. And I thought, oh, <laughs> what is monster theory? That came out of nowhere, didn't it? So, okay. So, so then as one does, when you're, you know, presenting at a conference, you try to kind of craft your, your presentation so it fits into a session. And I thought, well, monster theory sounds interesting. And I just started going down this rabbit hole of monster theory. And at the end of it, I realized that the angels I was studying were not that different from the monsters that were coming up in monster theory. And so it led me into this really strange realm of biblical studies uh, where I started finding monsters everywhere. Okay. Under the bed and in the closet too, or just more in the text? (laughs) Well, my family's very obsessed with dragons and monsters, so they really are everywhere in my life. Um, Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So just very basically, what is a monster in monster theory? All right. Well, monster theory is a way of reading a text by prioritizing the monster. And how we define monsters differs on basically how it's been used in history. So today, if you were to ask, you know, someone just off the street, what is a monster? They would definitely use a lot of the same kind of characteristics. They're evil, they're scary, they're abnormally large, 
they're trying to eat people all the time. Like the mouth of the monster is is a huge thing in all across different cultures. They are out to harm humanity. Uh, and so, and definitely the evilness and the disgustingness of the monster is something that people will focus on. But in monster theory, if you go back to like the roots of the word monster, and again, the roots are difficult to find, but often people will go back to the Latin uh, monstrum, which means a sign, which may be related to a couple other Latin words that mean a warning or even like a, a demonstration. And so a lot of people will say that this the, the use of the word monster is really a sign or a warning from the gods or the deities. And so it's something that is extraordinary that shows up and that typically crosses boundaries. And often they cross boundaries in their bodies, but also in the way they move across geographical locations. And so we can find monsters pretty much everywhere in something like Greek mythology, but this also shows up in Babylon, it shows up at Ugarit, it will show up in in cultures all around the world where monsters are these extraordinary bodies. Sometimes we focus on their kind of deviance, like that they're misshapen or that they're missing something. And other times um, we focus on their awesomeness. And so monster theory doesn't always, sometimes they do, but doesn't always place a value on their mm-hmm. hybridity. It's not a moral judgment if you're a monster like it is today. Okay. So it's widespread in ancient cultures, including Jewish culture, right? I mean, it, we find these things in the Bible. And I know you've been doing some work in the book of Revelation itself. And that is, I mean, that's maybe a a different kind of perspective to read this from, you know, the the perspective of the monster in the book of Revelation. But let's just, different from what people are used to, you know, the way at least a modern, you know, Western Christians tend to read the book of Revelation is just either literally true or just incomprehensibly weird, you know. But let's let's talk about these. There there are monsters in the book of Revelation. Help us understand who those monsters are and you know what role they play in this piece of literature because this is all about trying to understand what this writer of the book of Revelation is trying to say, right? And he's using imagery and so what is, what is that monster imagery that he's using? Well, to start with, I think it's really important to understand that there's no actual word for monster. You know, like we have to start excavating and digging into the text. So we can't just have like a great, you know, word that we can just say, oh, this word means monster and go find it. We do mm-hmm. have some words, like in Hebrew, we have tanim, like, and we have some words that, you know, like Leviathan, and we have the, you know, different words that even say like beasts or animal. And we, and those are sometimes used as monstrous figures. Um, but a lot of times, um, monsters in the Bible come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And so I do call it excavation. And oftentimes I also say that they're hidden in plain sight. So there are monsters in Revelation that people don't even see anymore because they have become normalized. And so we need to, I, what, I, what I start with is, is actually reading the body of the monster. So before I identify the monsters, I say we actually need to recognize what monsters look like um, for the ancient peoples. And even today, a lot of these things still hold true. So monster theorists talk about the hybrid body. So the idea that a monster is composed of different parts. And so that's where you get in the ancient world, like something like the Sphinx, or you get even like the mermaid, right? Like, like Ariel, mm-hmm. she is like part human. Oh, not Ariel. 
<laughs> yes. No. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, but then you'll see something like Pirates of the Caribbean where they're using mermaids as like monstrous creatures, right? It depends the lens that you're using. And so when we start to read their bodies, we start to recognize them a little more. So we want to pay attention to any divine creature um, that is combining different parts that don't normally belong together. So they're crossing boundaries in their bodies. They're also um, perhaps larger than normal. So you can have these gigantic figures. Um, so the text might describe them as, as large or great or immense, or even their actions show that they're bigger than normal. And then you'll also find sometimes they come in swarms. So you'll have like a massification of all of these animals that are, are coming at once. And again, they're usually hybrid creatures that are coming as one kind of, I, I usually call them a, an attack force. And then you also have to think about who are they associated with? Um, who are they working for? Who are they, whose team are they on, if you want to use that language? And so that's where I start with when I look at any monstrous figure in, in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. So when we get to the book of Revelation, um, one of the ways that people look at it is they really see it through the lens of the dragon and the two beasts. So Revelation 12 and 13, that those are our chief monsters right because they are the the aggressors they are the the negative the what we would what often we call the evil characters and that they are um you know you know the dragon goes up to heaven to attack it he's attacking the woman clothed with the sun um and so oftentimes people will focus on the dragon as the figure of chaos and this gets us back to that ancient figure of chaos who shows up all throughout the old testament um the leviathan or other monstrous kind of sea serpents right and we have this narrative of the god of order in the old testament who fights the chaos monster and then defeats the chaos monster and often the chaos monster is representative of some kind of empire whether it's pharaoh in egypt or whether it's nebuchadnezzar or whether it's um antiochus right in in the book of daniel and beyond so all of these empires sometimes take the form of monsters, right? They're, these monsters become the symbol of the crisis um, that people are going through. And you have the exact same thing in Revelation. You have the great red dragon who is portray, who's portraying or symbolizing uh, the Roman Empire and the threat, um, perhaps, that people are feeling um, or their discomfort of being of living under empire. And so when I look at Revelation, it's really easy to look at the Great Red Dragon as the monster. But then what happens is we forget about the, all the other hybrid and divine creatures that populate this book. And that's actually where I often focus is these other creatures that don't get the airtime. Because monster theory is actually prioritizing the monsters. And even in a book like Revelation, you would think that monsters are being centralized in the narrative, but it doesn't always happen. A lot of times, scholarship hasn't really given them the focus. So let's give these guys some airtime. Yes, <laughs> let's do that. These poor monsters who have been in the shadows for so long. <laughs> yeah. I thought they liked the shadows, though. No, that's a time to come They out the do, shadows. they do. And some are in the shadows, and again, some are not in the shadows. So let's start with some of the ones that Perhaps get some negative feedback from, from people. So the first one are the locusts in Revelation 9. And I like to focus on them because most uh, scholars see them as evil and as disgusting. So I don't know how familiar you are with these locusts and what they look like, but they are described as having human faces and long hair 
and their familiarity, like that human face that's familiar to us becomes really unsettling because they have lion-like teeth and they have tails like scorpions and they attack. Hmm. And these are, these are the locusts that come out of the abyss. There is a, a star that falls from heaven, opens the door of the abyss, and you get this angel-like creature or some divine being that comes out who is also known as the destroyer or as destruction. And this, this being is the king of the locusts. And then the locusts are given the command to attack anyone who does not have the seal of God. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they have a, a human face. They do. Which, you know, when you said, I'm not kidding, that's sort of like, it freaked me out a little bit, because there's something about animals with human faces that's frightening. I don't know, it's not cute. When when dogs look like dogs, it's cute, but when you put a human face on an animal, it's it's so strange and so other, mm-hmm. you know, you can't help but be a little bit frightened. But you're you're saying that, are, are you saying that these are sort of an enemy figure in the book of Revelation or not? Well, it depends who you ask. So, if okay. you look at a lot of the scholarship around it, a lot of people will argue that uh, destroyer or destruction, however you want to call it, like Apollyon is, is one of the names he's given, of uh, this king that rises out of the abyss, they will say he is a representative of Belial or Satan. So, he's kind of, some kind of evil or satanic figure. And these locusts are demon-like. And so, already you can see all of these labels are being added onto these creatures already. They're not in the text. They're not called demons. They're not called evil. Uh, okay. But uh, as you read uh, deeper into the scholarship, you, you just see all of these labels are just being added onto them. Um, but what's interesting is they are doing the work of God. Um, they are very closely aligned with the divine throne room, and they are, what I argue, part of a divine army or attack force. And so, very much like the Old Testament locusts in Joel or Exodus, uh, they seem very much to be divinely sanctioned to go in and to attack. And just like in Exodus, uh, where the plagues were limited in, you know, who they would affect, the locusts are also limited in who they can attack, for how long they can attack. And they're even told not to attack the vegetation, right? Like Earth mm-hmm. is, is given a, a reprieve, but it's the people without the seal or the mark who are attacked by these locusts. And so this is not the dragon's attack force. This is actually coming right from the divine throne room. It, do you think there is an intentional like parallel with the plague story in Exodus, or is it just a common thing that happens in biblical stories? That's a hard question. John, um, yeah, John's reuse of Exodus, Isaiah, of much of the Old Testament, Joel, you can see it. Like you can like, you can feel it as you're reading Revelation, but it's not always a one-to-one ratio. There is a mixing, I mean, I use the word hybridity to talk about how John is reusing material and in the process of reusing, creating something new. And, and so, I absolutely think there is a reuse of Exodus, but it's not... It's not a one-to-one application of it. He's doing something different here. And in the process, it's pretty unnerving. And your use of the word other is, is actually spot on when it comes to monster theory, because we often describe monsters not as evil, but as other. Um, and whether they're good or bad or good or evil, if we want to use those terms, they, their main qualifier is other. They don't fit our categories. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, just to go back to, to that, 
what, what's, what's at stake in terms of when we read Revelation and maybe make assumptions about what monsters are good or bad, how does that impact how we read Revelation or maybe other biblical texts where the other is assumed to be bad? I mean, I just think my, in my tradition, if it's other, it's assumed to be bad. And so, what, what's the implications of that? Well, one of the biggest implications is that if we follow kind of the chain of command back from the locusts, the next creatures that we get to are the four riders of the apocalypse. And again, they're another group of monstrous creatures that are often seen as negative, as demonic. They're bringing, you know, plagues and awfulness to humanity. And there's a real reluctance in scholarship to see the connection between the four riders of the apocalypse and the heavenly creatures. And I find it fascinating because a lot of artistic depictions don't have that hesitation. So you'll see like in Albrecht Durer's engravings that they have usually like some kind of angel who's almost like pointing the way forward for the four riders. Sometimes you'll even have a lamb uh, in the corner um, representing, you know, the lamb of Revelation 4, who's kind of sanctioning the use, like the, the coming of these riders. And even in the text itself, it's really clear that the living creatures are saying, come, go, mm-hmm. you know, they're giving their divine ascent, you know, from the throne room through the living creatures to the four riders, and then eventually to these other monstrous creatures. And so when we start following the chain of command back, we really realize that the locusts and the four horsemen or four riders of the apocalypse are part of God's army. And what happens when commentators call these creatures evil, monstrous, ugly, I mean, monstrous is fine, but like ugly and deviant Mm -hmm. is, is that they're really, they start to make excuses for why God is using these creatures. So, they'll say Mm -hmm. that God uses evil for God's own purposes, right? It's like a way of trying to excuse why God is being aligned with these creatures. Yeah, I mean, because the book of Revelation is, for many people, including myself, uncomfortably violent. And, right, so I can understand why people would do that, but it doesn't mean it's a good reading of the text. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit 
for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, so the riders are, they're, they're sort of part of the chain of command. Are, are they monsters themselves or are they just helping us understand that this is all a God thing that's happening here with the locusts. Yes, the riders. So when I try to read the body, the monster, the riders are harder because we don't have as much description um, of their actual bodies. And yet, I mean, they're probably some kind of angelic cavalry, similar to what Uh you have at the end of Zechariah. You have like angels on chariots kind of going out and patrolling the world. So this idea of angels on horses moving throughout the world is not uncommon in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would also say that angels themselves, by their very definition and being, are also monstrous creatures. Okay, yeah, yeah. And seeing riding on horses, that's a little bit maybe weird. (laughs) Uh, Well, can I, uh, not to take us too far afield here, or maybe I will, maybe I do want to do that. I want to extrapolate that because I think there's this bigger principle here of how monsters in the way you've defined them are portrayed, particularly in whether, in their relationship to God. Because what I hear is, you know, locusts come from the abyss. In some ways, they're sort of the the Lord's army, if you will, um, this attack force. And then I can't help but think about um, Leviathan in the in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, where there's it seems to be this animosity, or there's a tradition of animosity, but then it ends up being like God's pet in some ways, in in maybe Job or something. And so I guess it just brought to mind, you know, what. In, in the biblical story, do we see different relationships of these monsters, these various monsters to God? Are some enemies, some not enemies? And how, how do we kind of adjudicate between those? Because I think with Revelation, it might be tricky. Like you said, a lot of scholars just make assumptions. So, how do we kind of know how these monsters are functioning in the Bible as, as far as it relates to their relationship to God? I think, first of all, we have to be really careful about judging their appearance to say, oh, you're a hybrid, therefore you're evil or you're disgusting. Therefore, you are like counter uh, counter God. And, and this comes up actually quite often, both in Daniel and in Revelation scholarship. So, let's, let's pick another example, which will get us back to the Old Testament. But if we look at the living creatures in Revelation, they are... Um, 
you know, like their very classic kind of reuse of the cherubim of Ezekiel, for example. And in Ezekiel, they have four faces and um, they're pretty scary beings, right? They're like the, the ancient sphinxes of the world and they surround the throne of God and they are keeping people from accessing the divine, right? They're, they're kind mm-hmm. of the guards um, that, that guard the divine throne in many of these cases. But when we, when we think about like hybridity, when people look at like the the locusts, for example, it's pretty easy to say, oh, they're ugly, therefore they're evil. But when we look at the cherubim and their bodies are just as hybrid, they're just as scary and they're just as dangerous. That's another thing about monsters is they are dangerous. Whether we deem them good or evil, they are dangerous. And the cherubim fit all the characteristics that the locusts do, for example, but people will look at them and say, oh, they are an example of God's creation, right? They are they are mm. showing God's wholeness in creation, and all these things fit together beautifully. But really, I mean, they're monsters. They're scary. They are crossing boundaries. And even the living creatures in Revelation, they're not just crossing animal-human, but they also may be crossing inanimate objects. There is debate about how much the living creatures, both in the Old Testament with the cherubim and the living creatures in Revelation, are part of the like the throne of God, right? Are they separated from the throne? Are they part of the throne? Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls go into this a little bit as well in the Songs of the Sabbath sacrifice. So there is debate about how animate versus inanimate these monsters are. Hey everyone, Jared here. I have a very exciting announcement to make before we get back to the podcast. Last year, I released a book called Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. Well, as we head into the holidays this year, I thought it would be appropriate to revisit this idea. So I have a brand new limited episode podcast out called How to Disagree where I talk to a religiously conservative father and a progressive daughter as they talk about how they've managed their relationship over the years. I talk to a married couple, one politically conservative and one politically liberal. In one episode, I interview a communication and conflict expert, and I had a blast with all of these episodes and more. The series is about how to disagree with people you love, and you can find it in the show notes of today's episode of The Bible for Normal People, or just search wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you haven't already, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. Okay, now back to the podcast. Yeah, it made me think of the cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I guess maybe maybe that's not a good example because they're not like living creatures, but still they're inanimate and they're sitting there and... If that's God's footstool, which it seems to be, according to at least some texts. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, the cherubim, they're, I mean, the cherubim and the locusts are acting on God's behalf. They're just really freaky scary. Yes, and but the thing is, we right. have neutralized the cherubim. So, if you look at paintings, the cherubim uh, are like these baby faces, angels, right? With yeah. wings, and they're cute. Hey, that's scary. I know I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old grandkids, and that's about as scary as it gets. But anyway, 
carry on with your point. That was for my daughter. I threw that in for free. So, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, but I mean, we've just neutralized the, the, the fear of them. But the cherry beam, their job is to keep people away, right? Like they're the guards and they're guarding um, the divine presence. They're also the channels of the divine presence. As much as they're keeping people away, they also become the channels of the divine presence. And so the cherubim play a really important role. And you can see that in Revelation when they are the ones who instigate a lot of the plagues and by telling the, the riders to come and to leave and to, to go out and judge. And so definitely they are they are part of this attack force and they are part of this, I guess, this command that I see that kind of goes down. And what I find is that people want to separate the divine beings in Revelation based on their violence and the harm and the right. fear they cause. But in the end, the the person who causes, or the people, the, who cause the most fear and terror is not really the dragon and the beast, but God and the Lamb. And in mm-hmm. Revelation, John is very clear that the terror and the horror come from the divine throne room. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that this is bringing up for me is how important it is to understand, you know, the imagery of monsters in the book of Revelation, or frankly, most anything in the book of Revelation, with a little bit of background to what's happening in, you know, in the Hebrew scriptures. And, you know, you mentioned one Enoch, you know, we have intertestamental so-called literature as well, and just the ancient world as a whole. So, these these images probably made a tremendous amount of sense to the people reading them, but we look at them and we and and you've been saying this we tend to try to have these things fit into a structure a theological structure you know um um a, a faith structure even if you will and we wind up probably misunderstanding what these figures are doing and that's 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 sort of a shame because this is extremely interesting i might even go back and read the book of revelation again no, I'm just whoa, kidding. whoa. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Not I get actually, carried away. I actually <laughs> love the Book of Revelation. So, <laughs> so I mean, we have the um, other examples of monsters in the Book of Revelation. Well, I thought actually it might be helpful to even see that this this I guess mislabeling of the monster or perhaps the overlooking of a monster um, also happens when biblical scholars look at ancient Near Eastern literature. Uh, so, if you're familiar with the Enuma Elish and kind of the struggle between Marduk and Tiamat, the same thing is happening there when biblical scholars are reading that. They often read Tiamat as the chaos monster and Marduk as the hero of the text. But a lot of the more recent scholarship is calling that into question, primarily because Marduk is presented as a monster. Mm-hmm. But we don't remember that. He has like multiple limbs and he has many eyes and many ears. He breathes fire. But that's not what you remember. You remember Tiamat as the monster who is the aggressor. And a lot of people right now are rereading this conflict between the two of them, not as the hero versus the monster, but as a conflict between two gods. And Tiamat loses, and she becomes monstrous and othered. Even though, in effect, um, if we're using monster theory, both Marduk and Tiamat are just as monstrous. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I wonder, I, I feel like there's so much to unpack and, and go through the layers of our assumptions. And I think that for me is like becoming the main takeaway of this conversation is how powerful our categories and labeling of things affect 
our reading of texts where because for us the other the 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 face of a this and the hybridity right the hybrid nature of these beings it's almost like we have it baked into us that this is bad. We put these value judgments. This is bad. This is evil. This can't come from God. This is good. This can come from God. And we almost even shape and reinterpret these figures in our own imaginations according to these categories where like Tiamat, Marduk, or even the cherubim, like you said, we, it's like in mean, modern imagination, we've had to reimagine those into what we quote call good figures who have certain kind of body types and certain kind of faces and certain kind of things that don't sort of scare us. And it's just, I, I think that's really interesting. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I think part of it comes out of some of our readings of Leviticus, but especially the reliance on Mary Douglas and her work on purity. Uh, and so we have it kind of in our, I don't know, like our mental kind of systems that when we look at these texts, that anything that crosses boundaries is impure, right? Because that's sort of the narrative that, that we've kind of inherited. But Mary Douglas is, is interesting because when you look at her work, she she seems to skirt around the implications for the divine creatures. So in my work, I, I look at, you know, some things she says with the cherubim and she says, you know, yeah, these are hybrids and yet we treat them with awe rather than disgust. But then in the next sentence, she'll say, but the Jews treated, Jewish people treated all hybrids as disgusting. And so there's hmm. a, there's a, You'll notice when you look at Leviticus and the purity mm-hmm. systems, it doesn't always map on to the divine world. And I think that's one of the problems is uh, mm-hmm. we're not looking at the bigger picture of how both heaven and earth and the abyss or the netherworld or whatever you want to call it. We have monsters everywhere. So we have them from heaven all the way into Hades. And yes, even in some place like the abyss, you can have locusts. Now, they're dangerous and they're scary, but they seem to be working for God in heaven. Uh, and so, it, it's much more complicated, I think, than just saying, these are good creatures, these are bad creatures. It seems like they're dangerous creatures. They're other. Right. And and, and again, I, I want to maybe bring up this as a bit of a, an interesting point for me that in my tradition growing up, I guess kind of in modern imagination, the most disfigured, scary creature is the Satan, right? Or the devil. Mm -hmm. And yet in the biblical text, the few times that this figure shows up, not really presented that scary. Not not really that seen as the way we've maybe configured Satan or the devil in our modern imagination. And yet these figures that are actually acting on behalf of God is portrayed or depicted in even scarier ways maybe than we would see the devil or Satan in the in the Bible. Is that fair too? Maybe I'm missing some points there. Uh, no, I mean, the body of Satan, I mean, sometimes it's referred to, you know, as an animal, like as a lion prowling in Revelation. There's, you know, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, the great red dragon. There's an amalgamation of all these figures. But the, you know, the body of Satan is not really described as much. And so, um, you know, you have like a great large red dragon, and it's probably a hybrid creature. But again, the focus for John in Revelation is is not, I mean, it is on the red dragon to, a, to an extent, but that is not his focus. That becomes, I think, later interpreter's focus, right? We think of Revelation as this, this text where the dragon is out to get everyone, and the dragon absolutely is, but the focus for John is actually on God in heaven, who is going to save and intercede uh, for those who are being attacked. And so, 
I mean, if we go back to like the very, the heart of the book of Revelation to four and five and God on the throne, you know, God fits all of those monstrous categories as well as the the hybrid lion lamb that shows up in in Revelation uh, like four and five as well. So even there in the divine throne room, I would argue we have monstrous language um, being attributed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any more monsters that we should know about? Lurking in the shadows, under the bed, in the closet? I mean, Revelation is full of monsters. The Bible is full of monsters. I mean, I do know when I teach on Revelation and I start calling Jesus a monster. Okay, you got my attention. How is Jesus a monster? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, people do take a little step back from that, but... Um, there are, you know, three, like three different, you know, images really of Jesus that show up in Revelation. We have the Son of Man in the first chapter. We have, and this, and, and you know, it's a human divine hybrid with a sword coming out of his mouth. He has eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze, and he's holding the keys of death. And he was dead, but now he's alive. So even in that description, we have both hybridity and liminality, right? We have someone who has transitioned from death to life. Um, so the like the regular normal boundaries don't apply to this figure anymore. And you know, this figure is holding the keys of death and Hades. And one thing I didn't mention, but it's really one way to find a monster is to look at how the humans are reacting around them. When John sees this figure, he falls over as if dead. And I adore these reactions of horror and terror that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, Daniel's another one who is like falling over as if sick. And you can see when someone meets a monster, they are scared. And I mean, the mm-hmm. classic example is the shepherds when they meet the angel, uh, the angels, you know, on the, uh, with the nativity, they are scared so that the angels will say, do not fear. So when you meet an angel and you are told not to be scared, it's because you're terrified because you're in the presence of something other and monstrous. And so, yeah, so we have Jesus as like the son of man who is, is definitely a monstrous figure. But then I think the weirdest one for me is Jesus as the lion and the lamb. And what's interesting is that scholarship really tries to diminish the lion aspect of, of this, of this part of Revelation. They're not comfortable, uh, with Jesus being described as a lion. And so they want to say, you know, wherever you see, like, whenever you see lion, it's just a lamb, you know, like it's just a metaphor. Um, just go with the lamb imagery. But what they forget is that this isn't a normal lamb. This is a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. And this lamb is able to take a scroll and open it. And so this is a very hybrid and monstrous lamb. It doesn't fit into our normal categories. But even when you, when people think of the lamb, I think they just think of this normal, cute lamb. But this is also a lamb that has been slaughtered and yet is alive. And so I think that we go too quickly to the metaphor before really appreciating its monstrous body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hear people talking about God, you know, is a moral monster for killing people all over the place. But um, I'm, you know, I just want to piggyback on things you've been saying all along, and especially at the beginning, for for our listeners, that it, it all depends really on how we define monster and what we mean by that. And if those Latin roots are any help to people, that these are signs, they're, they're warnings, they're maybe uh, even demonstrations of God's presence somehow, which is not comfortable necessarily. And I guess, I guess all these bad things are happening to bad people, not to be simplistic in Sunday school about it, but right, because they're, 
you know, the, 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 the marginalized, the people who were oppressed in the book of Revelation are kept safe from these things that are done to them. Is that right? And it's, it's just like others who get it? Yes, from John's perspective. So right. that's, yeah. So from John's perspective, the judgments are valid. Um, but when we look at it from someone like Jezebel, uh, who is John's opponent, um, who's, no, who's named as a prophetess, uh, and we don't know if, if she's a real person or if it's like a, a group of people and they're using like a female identification as a way of shaming them. It's not very clear like who this is. And again, Jezebel is reusing an Old Testament name, uh, which has also its own set of negative connotations, especially that scholars have added on. And so mm -hmm. when we look at Revelation, we often look at it from John's view, and he is absolutely othering someone like Jezebel. And he aligns her even with someone like, um, like woman Babylon, or as most people call her, like the whore of Babylon. And so he is othering his opponents by aligning them with the dragon and the beast. And on the other hand, he aligns himself uh, with God and with um, like the divine world. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I think that's actually a really good segue into this last question as we wrap up our time here. But how... As people kind of look for new ways, interesting ways, creative ways of reading their Bible, you talked earlier about centering the monster. And, you know, how, how might people, just some practical ways for how might people read the Bible in, this, in a way that centers the monster? Like, any, do you have any practical tips for maybe a new way to approach the Bible in a way that includes monster theory in some small way? I think one of the ways, at least that I teach my students, is to be careful of the places of Scripture that you're ignoring. So, what are the corners that are dusty that you haven't, you know, read for a while? And, I mean, a, a bit back to your point, Pete, about, you know, in Revelation, it's only the, you know, the people who are experiencing judgment are the ones who deserve it. The Old Testament has kind of a different story sometimes. So, the book of Job has, mm -hmm. you know, Job talking about God using some metaphors that are really uncomfortable. So, God as beast, God as archer, God as warrior, God as lion. So, when we are looking at a book like Revelation, I think we really need to have a really strong backing in these older images of God in the Old Testament. Because for me, when I read Revelation as an Old Testament scholar, I am just reading a continuation of this divine warrior theme that's attributed to God all throughout the Old Testament. So when I read Revelation, it's, it's just, it makes a lot of sense because that's mm -hmm. what's happening all throughout the Old Testament. But if you don't know your Old Testament and you get to Revelation, that picture of Jesus as a divine warrior, and we didn't get to Revelation 19, but Jesus takes on divine warrior imagery, and it's pretty violent, and it's unsettling, and it's, and it's scary. Um, mm -hmm. But if you don't know that that is normative in the Old Testament, it becomes really unsettling if you've only read the New Testament. And, and so, I think just a greater appreciation about how Revelation is, is speaking back to the Old Testament, and then again, just being really aware that monsters matter. That monsters aren't just the evil creatures, that the monstrous is something that can cause awe as much as it can terror. And I think to me, that's changed the way that I approach something like holiness. That holiness isn't something necessarily that's completely, it's not, it doesn't, I think Rudolf Otto, his book, The Idea of the Holy, talks about holiness doesn't equal completely good. It's not necessarily a moral category. 
but it's mm-hmm. more the emotion of, you know, feeling your creatureliness in relationship to the divine, to the creator. And, and so I think that when we start looking at the monster in an interesting way, it makes us start thinking about what holiness means. And it also helps us to not sanitize the God of both the Old and New Testament, but to realize we cannot put God in a box and, and try to make God comfortable. The God, um, especially when we look at this monstrous imagery of God, the divine world, it's not necessarily saying, you know, it's not, um, you're not saying something is evil, because I don't think that's how they thought. They didn't think in terms of good and evil yet. That's a much later development. But they thought in terms of other and awesome. And it's it's breaking all the categories that we keep trying to put. And I think that monster theory really helps us to recover some of the more ambiguity that we find in the text. Yeah, it, the God that we've tamed doesn't fit with the book of Revelation and other places. That's a really, really helpful point. Mm-hmm. That's a great point yeah. to end on. Too. I think it's a good, yeah, yeah. great place to end on because I think that really helps people see a broader perspective. And it, something we talk about a lot on the podcast is being aware of the things that we're putting into the text and the context that maybe isn't always there. So, right. excellent. Well, thank you so much again, Heather, for dropping by and for, you know, just downloading all this wonderful knowledge about monster theory. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. See See ya. See ya. You just made it through another entire episode of the Bible for normal people. Well done to you and well done to everyone who supports us by writing the podcast, leaving us a review or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Robert Sedlaski, Jay Batson, Lee Ray Mercado, Joshua Edson, Brenda Elser, Steve Sutton, Patty Brown, Kara Mosley, Mike Cook, and Paul Mark. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Recovering the monstrous in Revelation. You can see how that's relevant. Uh, relevant. <laughs> Revelation. Relevant. Uh, relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.